Please take a seat. Well, on the back of uh, your notice sheets, you'll see an outline of uh, where we'll be heading this morning uh, as we look at John 6 together. And I've even put a picture there for you. I'll leave you to guess uh, what that is as, as we go along. Uh, a certain member of the uh, church staff uh, said it was uh, maggot pupae was her guess of what that was. Let me assure you that's not what it is. It's something far more friendly and tasty. Um, so uh, worth having that open. And uh, also John 6, which is page 1070, worth opening that as well. I'm going to pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your kindness to us that uh, you don't leave us uh, stumbling around in the dark as to who you are and uh, who we are as well. Father, that you have made that known. You speak powerfully and most of all you speak uh, powerfully through your son. And so we pray, Father, as we read and uh, explore together your written word that we will see the living word, that we will trust him and in trusting him we will glorify you. Amen. Well, over the past three weeks uh, we've been exploring together these early chapters of John's Gospel. And really uh, what we've been doing in these weeks together is we've been zooming in on the Gospel itself. Uh, That's been right at the heart of what we've been doing. Week after week we've been hearing the sound of the Gospel through these words in the early chapters of John. Now one of the dangers of that, if you are a Christian is that as a believer we can think that we've got the gospel bit worked out. I've sort of moved on from that. I've sort of understand the gospel, the the gospel that tells me how to become a Christian, to trust Jesus. We've heard it week after week. And then it tells me a bit about the end, the payoff that comes with it, heaven, eternal life. We've heard that again and again in these weeks just past. And we can think as Christians that we've sort of moved on from that, that... uh, that's, that's for beginners and uh, I'm, I'm on to the, the more developed stuff. Uh, I've, I've got the gospel worked out. I don't need to hear any more about the start bit or the end bit. I want to know about the bit in the middle, uh, life now. How am I meant to live now as a Christian? I heard uh, last week one person said, I've got uh, eternal life sorted out and I need, to now, need now to work out how to live normal life. And uh, I'm with that uh, sort of idea. That we, we can think that when we hear the gospel. Yes, I, I know that bit. I've worked that bit out. And it's almost like seeing the Christian life as being in an airport, in a transit lounge, waiting for your flight. You know you've got the ticket, ticket to heaven, it's all sorted out. And what you want to know is what what are you going to do with the hours that you've got left before the flight? And uh, God willing, there's quite a few hours uh, for all of us and we need to work out what would God have us do with life this side of heaven. And I think John 6 helps us with that. It takes up the challenge of that question. And uh, I think what it will show us is this that if we're unclear about how to live now as a Christian, then it may well mean that we are unclear about what the good news of the Gospel is. If we're unclear about how to live now as a Christian, it might be because we're unclear of what the good news of the Gospel is. Because I think what John 6 shows us is what what was good about becoming a Christian is the same thing that is good about heaven and it's the same thing that is good about life this side of heaven. So let's have a look. John 6, page 1070, if you don't have it open. And for those who are turning to it now, as you're turning to it, let me paint you a picture of heaven. Imagine you've just walked into heaven and there before you is this spectacular scene. Uh, God's great city that he has prepared for those that love him. Everything you can imagine is there. There, there is no disease, there is no mourning, no crying, no pain. All that's gone. All the friends and family that you love that trust Jesus are there with you. 
All the good things that you've imagined are there. How good does that sound? Well, here's the challenge of John 6. If we think that sounds very good, then we need to think again because that is not the picture of the good news that is the gospel of Jesus and that's what John 6 is going to help us think about. So really what we're going to do in John 6 is we're going to skim over the story that starts the chapter. We've been watching Jesus interact with people week after week and he does it again with a huge crowd this time, not just one person. An amazing miracle as he feeds 5,000 men along with however many women and children were there as well. And so we're going to skim over that just to sort of pick out the key details but then we're going to try and explore the implications of what happened. If you look in verses 1 to 9 you see uh, this, this crowd has a massive need. They've been following Jesus for some time. They know he is a healer. He has been uh, performing miracles, uh, he, healing the sick. We saw it last week with the man by the pool. 38 years he'd been an invalid and with one sentence Jesus turned that around and so they're following him. And I imagine many of them are either sick themselves or have people with them who are. But not only that, they have an even more basic need at this stage. They've been following him so far that they're hungry and a long way from home, a long way from where they get food, they need lunch. That's what verses 5 to 9 are all about. And again, like the woman from Samaria in John 4 and like the man by the pool last week, this great need is known by Jesus. He's aware of it. And he's concerned about it. But unlike us, and unlike the the crowd before him, and even Philip and Andrew, the disciples, he asked, what are we going to do about their need for food? He's not stumped by that need. This huge crowd, 5,000 men plus women and children. And yet we know from previous chapters, don't we, that this is not beyond Jesus, that he will provide, and he does And like he did in John 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, he provides abundantly. How do you respond to his provision? Well, have a look at verse 14 and see the crowd's response. Perfect, they think. This is exactly what we've been waiting for. This is the guy we need. Here is a man who can get us things. And they're right, aren't they? Jesus is the one the world has been waiting for. The good news is that Jesus has come. And yet for them the good news in verse 14 seems to be all about two things. Firstly, they want him to be king. I mean he can solve their problem they have with Rome, this oppressive empire that has got them under the thumb. Let's make him king, let's put him in charge. He'd be a much better ruler than Rome. And besides, if he was in charge, he could keep giving us stuff like this bread and and fish that he's provided for us. He's who we want in charge. And I think here in verse 14 we have what I'm referring to as the Clayton's Gospel. Now, uh, Clayton's was a a drink in Australia in the 70s and 80s. It was huge, uh, huge popularity because there was a massive marketing campaign behind it. And what Clayton's was, was it had a bottle that was shaped like a a sort of a typical whisky bottle. The water inside was the colour of whisky, but it was a non-alcoholic drink. It was Clayton's. Uh, and so uh, from now on, really, from that point on in Australia, Clayton's referred to something that was a pretend version of the real thing. And so this is what I think we have here when it comes to the Gospel. In verse 14, we have a Clayton's Gospel. The slogan for Clayton's uh, in the 70s and 80s was the drink you're having when you're not having a drink. And that's what's happening here. It's the Gospel you think you're trusting when you're not understanding what the real Gospel is. They think, let's make him king, let's, let's make him lord. 
so he can give us what we need. And in verse 15 we see Jesus' response to the Clayton's gospel. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. But they're not dissuaded, are they, as the passage goes on, verses 22 to 25, they seek him out desperate. They want what he can give them. And again in verse 27 we get Jesus' response to their persistence. And this for me I think is probably the key verse in this chapter for us. Verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And I think really in this one sentence Jesus is capturing for us what we've been exploring for weeks now. The good news of the gospel is that God is offering us something that really lasts, that won't disappoint, that won't come up short, that won't perish. Jesus is saying, don't, don't spend your life chasing after things that, that aren't going to last into eternity, that have no eternal value. Don't work hard for food, for houses, for clothes, for cars, for appliances, for books, for holidays, for gardens. Because as we saw in John 4, these things won't satisfy you. Instead, God wants us to pin our hopes on the sort of things that he has offered us in these chapters. Things like a new start with him, forgiveness, freedom from God's judgment, freedom from his wrath because of Jesus, being righteous, being able to stand before him and be accepted and having eternal life. That's what he wants us to pin our hopes on. That's the food that lasts. And that's what life is all about. God has been saying really through these chapters in John's Gospel to all these people that Jesus has met and he's saying it to us as we read it, I want you to bet the lot on me. I want you to trust me completely. Don't trust the bread of this world. I want you to trust me. And so the crowd make their response in verse 28. Sounds great. But uh, their logic, which I guess is the logic of our world, if, if there's anything good to have, you've got to work for it. You've got to do something to get it. And so they say, what works do we need to do? to get this bread that you're saying lasts forever. Well, Jesus' answer, as it has been all along, verse 29, you can't earn it. You have to trust me. Receive it by faith. Verse 30 and 31, uh, they ask what uh, all of the people have asked who have met Jesus so far in John's Gospel. How can we trust you? What sort of evidence are you going to give us that we can trust you? Now remember, these are the people who have been with Jesus as he's healed people. They've seen lives transformed. They saw this invalid who'd been that way for 38 years, healed in an instant, and yet they're still looking for evidence. And so they point to their forefathers. They say, in the past, God gave us bread from heaven. He dropped it out of the sky. Every day they got it. What sort of bread are you going to give us? They're still thinking bread. Jesus' response in verses 32 and 33. In a nutshell, I think what he is saying in these two verses is, If you eat the bread I give you, the evidence that it's worth trusting is that at last you will come to life. At last you will really live. Not baseline existence living, not sort of hand-to-mouth bread and water living, but real life. Trust me, he says. But verse 34, the crowd can't move beyond the gospel, the Clayton's gospel that sees Jesus as a means to an end. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And I think again in this verse, a bit like last week with the, uh, the man at the pool, we have a picture of our world. 
I mean, I suspect many people in our world, if, if they were to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, the, the question they want to know the answer to is, what's in it for me? What, what's the payoff? If I trust him, what, what, what do I get in return? And the temptation, I think, for us as Christians is to play to that question, to sort of explain the gospel in terms of that, explain the gospel in a way that sees Jesus as a means to an end. And there are lots of Clayton's gospels in churches that do that. Jesus as a means to self-improvement. Jesus as a means to being more confident in life. Jesus as a means to a marriage partner. Jesus as a means to prosperity. Listen to this uh, quote by a very successful Christian pastor. Speaking of the gospel, he says, God wants to make your life easier. He wants to assist you, to promote you, to give you advantages. He, He wants you to have preferential treatment. If you're unmarried and believing for a mate, you can just relax, knowing that at exactly the right time, God is going to bring the perfect person into your life. And if you tithe your income, God will make sure you get promoted. He'll cause you to get the best deals in life. That's the Clayton's Gospel. Jesus gets me stuff. But Jesus, in this chapter, is saying the exact opposite. He says, don't work and long for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And in verses 35 to 40, what he does for us is he makes crystal clear what this bread is that we're to long for, that we need so desperately. Verse 35, he says, I am all you need. I myself am all you need. Jesus is complete fulfilment, says verse 35. You will never be hungry or thirsty And more than that, verse 37, Jesus offers complete acceptance. He will never drive us away from him. Verse 38, he offers us complete safety. He will never lose us. And verse 39 and 40, he offers us complete certainty. I will raise you up to be with me on the last day. Complete fulfilment, complete acceptance, complete safety, Complete certainty. God says, bet the lot on me. But before he even asks us to do that, you see what he's done? He's taken all the risk out of that. All the risk out of trusting him. He is the security. He is our fulfilment. He is our safety. He is our certainty. Now if God has done that, if he's taken all the risk out of our relationship with him and all the risk out of eternal eternity for us forever, there's no risk there, then I guess my question is, why don't we live like that? Why is it, uh, then I find myself doing this, and I'm sure many of you do too, that while I know that, I find myself again and again labouring for the food that perishes, chasing after the food that perishes. It's like I need some sort of other collateral, some other guarantee other than Jesus, something else to feel safe, to feel fulfilled. Well, let me suggest the reason I think we do that. And I think it's the reason that this chapter gives us. If we are unsure about whether it's right to bet the lot on God and if we're unable to live that way, then I think the reason is we're unclear about what the burning heart of the gospel really is, what makes the gospel good news. You see, we look at the crowd in uh, verses 26 and 34 where they're saying, give us this bread, and we know that's not what life's about. We know that won't satisfy us. And so we rightly turn to Jesus, the satisfying water and bread. But, and here's the sting, 
Even here we can miss the point of what Jesus has been saying in these chapters. Even here Jesus can still remain a means to an end. And this has big implications for our inability to live for him now. Let me illustrate. If someone was to ask you what the gospel is, they're asking for an explanation of it, what would you say? What is the good news that we believe? Well, at one level, it's simple, isn't it? Uh, Corinthians 15 verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the moment, isn't it? The very heart of the Gospel is Jesus' death for us. And that death is one amazing blessings for us that we've been exploring in these weeks. A new start, forgiveness, no wrath, no condemnation from God, righteous, eternal life. And all of that is a gift. With no strings attached, we receive it by faith, not by works. Certainly much better than the bread of this world, isn't it? But if we stop here, then Jesus is still a means to an end. Jesus gets me forgiveness. That's our gospel. Jesus gets me eternal life. He's the guy who gets me stuff. It's good stuff, as good as you can get. But he's still the guy who gets me stuff. And on this whole point of trying to understand the gospel clearly, I've been hugely pushed in recent weeks by a book by John Piper. It's called God is the Gospel. Let me encourage you to, if, if, uh, as we think about this, that you are challenged by it, grab one of these. They're over in the bookstall and have a look and explore it further. Because his argument, and I think he's right from Scripture, is that Jesus gets me forgiveness is not the Gospel. The Gospel is forgiveness gets me Jesus. That's the Gospel. Think about it. Why does it matter that you are forgiven by God? It matters because now you can be with him. Why does it matter that you will live forever? Is that such a good thought? I mean, it it is, but why? Well, because you'll be with him. John 17, verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see what God's answer to human need is? He gives himself. It is Jesus. That's the gospel. You see, what was good about becoming a Christian and what is good about heaven is what is good about life, this side of heaven. It is Jesus. Only if we see him to be our complete satisfaction, he that will never drive us away, he that will never lose us, who will raise us up to be with him, only then will we bet the lot on him. So let's draw out three implications from understanding the gospel this way. Three implications which help us to see how we are to live this side of heaven. The first one is in verse 48. If that is the gospel rightly understood, then Jesus is your life. I mean, it's the shortest verse in the whole chapter and I think it sums it up perfectly for us. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Not I give the bread of life, I am the bread of life. Remember our picture at the beginning, the picture of heaven, this spectacular scene. There's no more mourning or crying or pain and and we're with people we love. What's wrong with that picture? Jesus isn't there. Heaven is about being with him. And if it wasn't, uh, you know, that was really the problem for the crowd. You see it there in verses 40 and 41. 
Jesus for them was just some guy. They knew him. They knew his parents. He's just the guy who gets us stuff. But God himself is the gospel, not what he gives us. He is our joy and our life. I think the reason the crowd missed that and the reason we can miss it is captured perfectly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and it's worth turning to that. Now it's page 1160, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4 says this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now if you are not a believer and you are here this morning, the Bible says that that's the thing you can't see. You can't see Jesus for who he is. You can't see Jesus as magnificent. So glorious in fact that he puts all the power in this world, all the money, all the applause, all the toys, all the relationships, all the sex in his shadow. The gospel is that moment when the blinds are ripped up in our life and the life that we thought was good and and glorious and bright, we see it's actually darkness compared to knowing him. Or as uh, Paul says in Philippians 3, it's, it's like cow dung compared to knowing him. That's, that's how literal Paul gets at that point. When you see Jesus for who he is, and you see how that moment happens, how the blinds are ripped up? It's not that we're so clever that we finally work it out. No, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. God spoke. Let there be light in this heart. That's how it happened. By his sovereign, creative, powerful word, God speaks into our dead, dull hearts and says, live. So if you are a Christian, you know this, don't you? That's, that's what makes us think reading the Bible is a good idea. Well, think about before you were a Christian, the thought of reading the Bible and think about it now. What, what, what has changed? Well, why is it a good to be here this morning? Why do you think that is a good thing? You know, I remember before I was a Christian, sitting in a church service was the absolute pits. Hated it. I have a vivid image in my head of a Christmas service in Melbourne years ago that I thought would never end. I thought that was it, I'm stuck here forever. What's changed? Well, God has shown me his glorious son. That's what's changed. Jesus is the bread of life. And to start seeing him as a means to an end is where we go off track. So that's the first implication. He is our life. Secondly, if he is our life, then feed on him. Verse 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The thing that led to our conversion, to our faith in Christ coming to life, was seeing our absolute need for the body and blood of Jesus, for his death on our behalf. That's the burning centre of the gospel, isn't it? That's where we begin and it's also where we end up. That's the picture of heaven as well. Revelation 5. Here you've got this spectacular description of heaven and right at the centre of it is a slain lamb. It's Jesus, his body and blood. And that's where we need to stay, this side of heaven. We feed on Christ crucified. And so if Jesus is my life, then I need to act and speak in ways that demonstrate that I'm totally satisfied in him, that I feed on him, not the bread of this world. So let's flesh that out. Let me me give... uh, Three habits that it will cause if we feed on him, two spheres of our life that it will affect and one idol that it will help us kill. Firstly, three habits. 
If you're feeding on Jesus, it means that you're feeding on the word of God. It's quite simple really. Have a look at verse 45. Jesus says, if you want to see this clearly, if you want to see me clearly, then you need to listen and learn from God. That's how we see Jesus for who he is. We let the word of God dwell in us richly, as Colossians says. So let me encourage you, if, if you are someone who's not in the habit of reading the Bible regularly, then you need to get in that habit. And not because God's up in heaven, he's got a sort of a checklist and he wants to tick that off your to-do list. The reason is that's the way we feed on him. That's the way we see him for who he is. That's how we don't lose sight of him. And if you're not reading it regularly, then you're going to be an anemic Christian. And so if, if you're not sure where to start with that, let me encourage you to, to have a look at the, sort of the reading guides that are over in the bookstore. If you want to know more about it, come and talk to me. There's some great material out there that will help you feed on Jesus. Second habit that this will lead to is feeding on Jesus means being dependent on him, praying to him, talking to him. We listen and we talk to him. Handing our circumstances over to him, handing our joys over to him, thanking for him for all the things that he has given us. Praying for our family, praying for our unsaved friends. Demonstrating that we feed on him, not the world, by bringing everything to him. And the third habit is doing those two things, listening to him and talking to him together with other Christians. Being in the habit of meeting together. They're the three habits. Here's two spheres that feeding on Jesus will affect. If I feed on him, if he is my bread, then it will mean I trust him with my circumstances. Did you hear that reading from Habakkuk 3 that we had earlier? There's this sort of list of things going horribly wrong. You know, the, the fig tree's withered, there's no sheep in the stall, there's, nothing's right and yet he says, yet I rejoice in God, my joy and my salvation. That's what feeding on Jesus looks like. It means I'll trust him with the things that I am anxious about. Have a look at 1 Peter 5, 7 sometime. You know, I met a lady uh, this week who has uh, a lot of reasons to be very anxious uh, when it comes to her health. She's not overplaying them, she's not being over-anxious, they're very serious problems. But even in sickness, she was supremely confident in Jesus. That's what feeding on him looks like. And it's amazing to witness Another sphere that it will affect, it will affect the way I view myself, my, my self-esteem, my self-image. One of my favourite verses in the Bible comes in uh, John 3 verse 30 when uh, the crowd are getting all excited about John the Baptist and uh, he, he stops them and he, and he says of Jesus, he says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. That's how it works. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. If we see Jesus as glorious, as who he really is, then we will see that we were made to make much of him, not the other way around. And that's where things like prosperity gospel go so horribly wrong. Three habits, two spheres. How about one idol that it will help us kill? There's all sorts of idols, things that we put in place of Jesus that we grow dependent on, but let me just pick one, and that's the idol of work, of career. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 30 and 31 says this, Brothers and sisters, time is short. From now on, those who buy something should buy as if it were not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of this world as if it did not engross them, for this world in its present form is passing away. If you feed on Jesus rather than your work 
or the possessions work can get you, then you'll hold your possessions loosely and you'll even hold your career loosely because the time before you're with him forever is just a short time. If we feed on him, our goal as workers will be enjoying seeing him glorified by the way we work. Jesus says to his disciples in John 4, 32 and 34, when they offer him bread, he says, you know, I have food that you don't even know about. And what he's talking about there is he says, my food is to do the will of God. We have that food too. Our job is not our bread, nor the stuff that our job gets us. It is Jesus. And so the Christian who is overlooked for a promotion or the Christian who is retrenched or the Christian who has their work in some way devalued or the Christian couple whose investments fail, all those, others, those things are disappointing. They are not crushed by them because their main food for working is still there. In our careers, we should be hungry to demonstrate that Jesus is the one who satisfies us. We should be hungry that if any of these things befall us, that he be honoured by the way we behave, by the peace with which we have, because he is our bread. The final implication I want to briefly touch on, as well as Jesus being our life, as well as feeding on him, is verse 54, live for heaven, live for heaven. Remember that question at the start, I've got eternal life sorted out, I just need to know about the normal life stuff now. Well, that's not the way the Bible views it. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, not will, has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Given this promise and uh, the promise that John 5:24 tells us that eternal life begins the moment we trust Jesus, given that he will never drive us away or lose us and that he will raise us up, then all the risk is gone, isn't it? All the risk is gone. And it means I can be risky in areas that I wouldn't have before if it's all sorted. It means I can be risky with money. You know, the ultimate example of that is Luke 21 where you've got the widow with, who has two copper coins and throws them both in. That's all she has, but she bets the lot on God. And so let me say, if you're, if you're not giving regularly, whether it be to this church or another church you're a part of or a Christian ministry of some sort, then you are saying you need something other than Jesus to be satisfied. You know, a, a tithe used to be the sort of the, the set amount to demonstrate that you, were, that, you, that you fed on Jesus, that you savoured him more than anything else. Well, I reckon that's the entry bet. That's the baseline. See Jesus as glorious. See that he has secured your future certain and be risky with money. Secondly, be risky with gospel ministry. Try things. Uh, this, uh, you, you could be trying leading kids church There'll be, there's a great need for helping out with kids church at 11am service maybe that's the risk that you'll take getting involved in that maybe starting something new if you're in a workplace or, or with friends starting a bible study or meeting up with a non-Christian friend at work and talking to them about Jesus take risks or maybe uh, even something more radical taking a day off uh, work a week to be involved in gospel ministry. Imagine the, the powerful testimony that would be at work to say, I'm going to take this whole day off, Thursday, I'm just going to take it off and I'm going to work in gospel ministry. Join the church plant if uh, one happens in a couple of years. You know, I know people at this church who are in the process of throwing away successful jobs to think about full-time ministry. If you see Jesus for who he is, if you see he has secured 
your eternal future, then you'd take risks, wouldn't you? And finally, if all the risk is gone, then even death will be different, won't it? Philippians 1, 20 and 21. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, it's possible even in death to glorify Jesus. And I glorify him when I'm able to experience death as the absolute loss of everything that I hold dear and still call it gain. It's amazing. To live is Christ and to die is gain because I will be with him. Let's conclude. John 6:58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who eats on this bread will live forever. The Bible says you cannot live and be sustained by the food of this world. Just just won't work. He is our bread. Jesus is the gospel. Let us stop feeding on the world and feed on him. Verse 66, when the disciples heard this, many of them left because it was a very hard teaching. And so Jesus turns to Peter in verse 67. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. Are you with him? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that uh, our, our faith, our trust in you will have the burning heart of it, our savouring of Jesus. Father, we pray that... Uh, by the way we live and the things that we say and uh, the decisions we make, we will glorify him and we will show uh, you and this world uh, that you are the one who satisfies us. Father, we pray that you will help us do this in his name. Amen.